In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here. That you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. The sun has risen this morning and shed its golden light on the frozen river. The light is gold, the light is clean, and the light is very cold. But nevertheless, it, it evokes for us the morning in which the holy women just ran. They ran towards the tomb. We see perhaps Mary Magdalene walking with a faster step. Mary, the mother of James, Salome. They all had a very important task. We read this uh, every year on the Easter Vigil. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that, that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. The angel is re-evoking their lives with Jesus, what he had spoken to them back in that first encounter that they had with him in Galilee, to return to that immeasurably beautiful moment in which they first heard his voice and began to follow him. That's what he was asking them to go back to, to go back to because he would wait there, but also to go back to that initial first encounter, that first conversion that they had. And of course, in this whole narrative, that breaks through the, the difficulty that they saw, and that was the prominent place of the stone. In fact, the stone is quite a prominent place in this narrative. The women are worried about it, and the angel is sitting on it. It's as though it has a disproportionate place in this marvelous account. I mean, it's just a stone. I mean, it can't talk, it can't do anything. It's just a stone. 
It's big, maybe heavy. But the light seems to just even dissipate the value, the weight of that stone. The light also coming from the angel. Well, we can think now, really, what is the stone in the way for me to see the real truth about Jesus, the real truth about my vocation? What stone stops me from testifying to that truth, from being a witness to that truth through my priesthood? The stone could be our fears. Stone could be maybe our anxieties, or, or just like sometimes just our lack of readiness to give of ourselves. Sometimes are still tempted to stay in a comfortable zone. You know, the, you know, the, the, you've heard it, the the circle of comfort thing that we have to move out of every day. Because if we don't move out. Uh, we won't be able to testify to the greatness of, of the Lord. And we ourselves, if we don't move out of the circle of comfort, we, we won't grow. But in the end, that stone was removed. During the life of our Lord, it was removed by some strong, burly men who removed the stone in front of Lazarus. Now, it was a much more powerful force that removed that stone. And, of course, they removed, uh, the, God removed that stone, or whoever removed it, the angel, whoever, and it allowed them to continue their rather unnecessary task of anointing, because he wasn't there, so it was no longer necessary. The stone was not removed or rolled away to let Jesus out, but for others to view the empty tomb. It wasn't... It wasn't so we could see Jesus. It was so we could see that he was in fact not there. As the angel said, uh, no, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. He's not here. Just seeing that empty tomb gave them faith. Of course, in an empty tomb, there's nothing. There's just nothing. <laughs> Yet the vision of that Nothing, the slab, okay, okay, also the, you know, the shroud, yeah, okay. But that's what gave them faith. It's what gave Peter faith. It's what gave John faith. He looked and he saw. And that's why it's very important in our life that we be able to remove the stones that, that block our vision, that block our enthusiasm, our zeal, our readiness to go out and meet the those difficult situations that, that might fill us with fear or anxiety, to remove those stones. God is there. You know, there's evangelicals in the south of the U.S. They're kind of country singers, just picture kind of Glenn Campbell style singing. And they sing together with one main guy singing, other guys with a guitar and these twangy guitar style country music, very you know, lovely, lovely songs. And they have one famous song they call He Still Rolls the Stone Away. And uh, I came across this tune recently and I thought it was just lovely. And they were all 
it's in front of this sort of blue collar audience with the this is from the early 90s or so and uh, you know ladies with curly hair and guys you know with big uh, you know jeans and all, all that you know and in the cowboy hats and and uh, and the guy in the center was singing and he had a group around him sort of accompanying him and i took note of the lyrics he says i was locked inside an unseen grave shackled by man's fallen state and they show clips of the people nodding you know the door was sealed by satan's strong hand there seemed no hope for escape so dark and lonely was my life was there no hope now for me but grace lit the darkness and i could see that old cross and in his nails scarred hands nail scarred hands were the key he still that's the course he still rolls the stone away he still changes hearts that will pray if you're bound by sin's prison you don't have to stay for he still rolls the stone away and people are swaying back and forth as as he says uh, he still rolls the stone away who gets the sense that there's people struggling with addiction and alcoholism and all, you know in those very sort of rough uh, uh, areas people with tattoos and you know he still rolls the stone away and activism of course assumes that we are the ones that have to roll that stone away that's what activism assumes in fact we have to be rolling the stone away every, every single moment we have to ensure become kind of these micromanagers that have to no i have to roll the stone away i have to do this i have you know when we're doing our apostolate when we're doing our ministry we have to do everything because the stone seems to be blocking us and as though the salvation of the very church the salvation of the parish somehow depended on us entirely we worry who's going to roll the stone away well nobody's going to roll so i have to do it and all our programs our talks are yeah we have to give perfect homilies we have to be liked we uh, but he still rolls the stone away Now, as you know, the the stone and and the tomb and the resurrection is represented differently in Western art as it is from uh, Byzantine or Eastern art. In Western art, Jesus is always shown coming out of the tomb with great power, kind of triumphing, uh, triumphing over over nature. With the soldiers like passed out below him, and you know Piero della Francesca is a beautiful painting of that from 1450s or so where he's got one leg standing up on the casket so to speak or in the tomb he's carrying St. George's flag of triumph sign of victory he looks alive he looks calm he looks sure he's kind of saying I'm coming out that's what that's what we want to be you know, we want I'm coming out Now, in Eastern art or Byzantine art, 
It's completely different. He's not triumphing over nature. He's going down. He's going down into the underworld. You know, he descended to the dead, we say. So he's actually going down and he's clutching the hand of Adam. And behind him is Eve. And then you see all the patriarchs. You see Jacob. You see Isaac. You see Abraham. You see Moses. There's just a whole cluster of people. David, you see his crown there. You know, you see. And Ezekiel the prophet who announced him. And Jeremiah and Isaiah. And everybody's like, like packed in there, you know. And the Lord is reaching out his hand and he's pulling them out. He's, he's, he's standing not on a stone, but on, on the gates of hell, literally. You know, and, and the gates of hell are smashed and the devils are scurrying away, you know. He seems to have burst into this cavernous room. And he stands on the gates of the underworld. But the bars cracked and broken by his power. Western art shows the tomb alone, open. Sometimes you just see the women go in. There's no Jesus. Sometimes. Sometimes later on, during the Renaissance, the scenes become a little bit different. You now you start to see Jesus coming out, and then bit by bit, he starts to float. He starts to appear to be floating above. Now, of course, Jesus does not tell us that Jesus rose from death. I mean, that would be accurate wording if it was related to a very personal reality. Like if he personally died and he kind of was resuscitated, if you like. But no, we, we don't say he, he rose on the third day, he rose from death. He said we ro- he rose from the dead, from that underworld, really, where he joined the countless throng of the dead, where he descended to the abyss, was formally closed off that that there are definitely a stone rolled away rolled rolled to shut that area it had no exit now he's opened the exit Christ is the first to have emerged from it and shall emerge in his wake all those who followed him as St. Paul says he was the first birth out of death his, his resurrection constitutes the first fruit of the harvest of the elect who will again with him be in the kingdom of God where we will be all in all. First letter of the Corinthians. So it's like, it's not just a personal phenomena. It's not just a personal thing he's doing. It's like rising over his death. Okay, whew, now I'm not dead. Okay, good. You know, that was close, you know. It's like he, he just kind of breaks the very you know, structure of reality. Mortem nostram destruxit. He has destroyed our death. Because he's dismembered our death. He divided it. Of course, there's the first death that still remains uh, because of the, as a punishment for sin. We all, obviously, we all know we're going to die. There's no more than a harmless passage you know, leading 
into the everlasting dwelling place uh, with God. The second death, that's the one of the damned. That's the one that no longer affects those who are together, united with Christ's resurrection. The stone has been rolled away. This the beautiful phrase uh, from St. Paul, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? So we, we ask the Lord to have that deep faith in the Lord's accompaniment in our, in our, in our ministry, in our priesthood, so that we could really say that, you know, O death, where is thy sting? O, o failure, where is thy sting? O humiliation, where is thy sting? O make mistakes and not be liked, where is thy sting? O reprimand from the bishop, where is thy sting? We have that, that sense what St. Eusebius used to call a kind of superiority complex. We, we always talk about people, oh, he has an inferiority complex. Okay, whatever that is, but but we have to be a, have a superior to a complex in the sense that we have a deep faith that the Lord accompanies us always and that we're acting and living and loving for Him, with Him. How will death, in fact, lose its sting? How can that happen? Because if it loses its sting, it will affect the rest of my life. It will make me much more daring, much more willing to suffer much more willing to throw myself into, into difficult moments where I give of myself to others. The comfort zone will be like completely unappealing to me. A few years ago, we watched a movie called Paul, Apostle of Christ. I think it's from 2018. Written and directed by Andrew Hyatt. It has as its star playing Paul, James Faulkner, the Apostle Paul, and then Jim Caviezel, who I think plays uh, Luke. Jim Caviezel, as you know, played uh, Christ, uh, so he kind of got a downgrade there in the, uh, in the type of characters he played, but still. You know. So James Faulkner, he's, who is he? he's that curmudgeon Lord uh, Cinderby in uh, Downton Abbey. He's always like upset with things and, you know, he wants things to be done professionally well, you know, in that in that role, right? He upbraids the butler for, I don't know, making some silly little mistake in his meal, right? And so he has like a, this this serious uh, look. But in this movie, he plays Paul, and I mean, he just has this intense look, and and uh, I, I thought it was you know very well cast, and especially when when. Uh, Paul himself dies. He who has said that, you know, where is thy sting, death? So, okay, so like, how does Paul himself experience death? And so, in this movie, they show him, they show the moment in which uh, Paul is beheaded, and he is, he's shown calmly, like putting his head, like St. Catherine of Siena, you know that scene, calmly putting his head on the block, because he couldn't be crucified because he was a Roman citizen, so he's going to get, uh, you know, decapitated. And it's kind of like that, no problem, you want me? Okay, he puts his head on the block, and you see the gleaming sword coming up. And then you see 
if you like what he sees you, know, you see all his friends you see in the distance in the shimmering light you see the, the Christians kind of like appearing through a, like almost like a mirage uh, in the whole world and then the Christians seem to like fade away and then you see a, a man in the distance walking again like walking like, like you would see in the distant desert in a kind of a mirage right? and the man is walking towards him it's clearly clearly Jesus right? whom now appears for the first time in the movie and it's as though I mean it's as though Paul hadn't died you don't see the blood he just it's as though he continues living and he goes to meet Jesus you know? it's the, I guess it's the way they represent death has lost its sting Lord how can death lose its sting for me how can any difficulty, any loss, lose its sting? I mean, it's still there. It's still real. Pain is real. But in some way, the sting in our life comes when we see things too much at the human level. You know, frustration comes when we see all these things through excessively through a human lens. And we let the darkness of discouragement uh, seep into our apostolate. And the stone, the stone is again covered, covers the, the tomb. Now that, that's when we see things too much, you know, at a human level. And that's why St. Rosemary would say, you know, discouragement is the ally of the enemy. And the devil sees to it that we don't reframe, reframe our setbacks. We don't reframe even the perception of our own weaknesses. And in, indeed, the the realization of our failings. The devil just wants to, like, you know, sort of uh, rub our faces into that. Like, you're no good at that. You can't do that. You, you made a huge mistake. That was really bad. You're weak. He makes us take ourselves too seriously. We can't laugh at ourselves. We just can't seem to roll the stone away. That's what the devil wants. And that's why the, the fall of the horizon of eternity or of eternal life, when we lose sight of that, it has the effect on Christian life, on the priestly life, like you like sand thrown on a flame. It suffocates it. It extinguishes it makes it difficult to persevere. It, we will not be able to persevere in our priesthood if we do not reframe and have that supernatural look, outlook and grow in that constantly. In other words, faith in eternal life. Supernatural vision is one of the real conditions for the possibility of evangelization, of doing apostolate. Sometimes we feel like we're in an, a Western art painting. You know, we are, we do our work well, human perfection, we're out of the tomb, we're like amazing. But other times we have to go below, like the Eastern paintings. We have to, we have to pray. We don't see the outside world. Or we don't see why COVID is still scratching at our backs. We don't see why these difficulties happen. Our own health. 
But we have to accept them. We're down amongst the dead where the Lord is going to free us. We do our normal task of work. Maybe it's not always very interesting. Maybe it's not always that enthusiastically done. But when it's done with love, everything becomes like an altar. Our desk becomes like an altar. An altar in the underworld. Where nobody sees us, maybe. When you're preparing a bulletin, for the weekly bulletin, oh, I have to prepare the bulletin. Okay, let's see who's who's died, and uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know how you guys do that, but uh, you know, so you have to search for through Google for good quotes uh, for this week or something. You know, that's why we always have to have supernatural vision in front of any failure, any sadness, any setback, any contradiction, any discouragement. You and I are invited to identify with Adam and, well, I guess every woman with Eve, but uh, as to stretch out our hands as the Lord stretches out his hands. And he, he grips our hands and he pulls us out of that chasm. Pulled out of the sepulcher, of the sepulcher of human vision. We must not lose our enthusiasm. Sometimes it's true. We can be a bit dry. It can be hard to pray. It can be humdrum. We don't see anything. We get into all little, all kinds of little conflicts in the parish, and uh, we get touchy. Perhaps you know we end up crying for anything for no reason, like Mary Magdalene. You know, she's just crying for no reason. What are you crying for? Sometimes we just can't recognize Jesus. We think he's the gardener. You know, when, when you read St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, try to, I try to picture the tone that he is dictating. You know, like we read this, that St. Catherine is dictating several letters at the same time, you know, and she's saying, okay, now say this da, 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 to this guy. Now, this, oh, this is the Pope. Okay, say this to the Pope, you know. And uh, so, like, so when he's dictating to his scribe, you know, is his voice gentle? Or is it sometimes really frustrated? So, in chapter 15 to the Corinthians, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. So I don't think he would say, well, you know, your faith is in vain. <laughs> I think he would say, your faith is in vain. Write that, you know. So I don't know how it comes out, but uh, it's kind of like in other translations, your faith is useless. If Christ is not risen, then your preaching is empty. Your faith is empty. It's all useless. He's kind of saying, he's like ticked off. Quod si Christus non resurrexit, vana est fides vestra. And you probably say, write that, make sure you write that. Write that down. Because it's true, you know, when you, you forget about something so foundational, we lose sight of it, we get blurred. You know, we, we see everything in a, through a blurred lens. 
Not only that, but imagine if we only hope for good outcomes uh, in this life. If we don't think of our resurrection, you know, that's what he said. If we do not believe in the resurrection, he said, we are the most miserable of men, he says. You know. He says, for if this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. Well, that's the more, you know, inclusive. But, uh, you know, see, in Akbita tantum in Christo sperantes sumus, miserabiliores sumus, omnibus omnibus. Like, we are the most miserable. We are, we are bad. Lord, I don't want to be miserable. That's what happens when I see everything through human eyes. Look down where Christ went, into the pit, into that dungeon, to pull out those who had long, long been awaiting him. Probably when they when he arrived, they said, Finally he's here. Everybody, he's here, he's here. You know. And they would just come out with such joy. So we must not ever let the supernatural fall away. I want to stay with you, Lord. We become better priests when we have this unshakable faith. You know, when we prepare that newly, or or when we when we marry that newly wedded couple, or we've just received the sacrament. Maybe you know when we do a wedding, we see all the externals and, uh, and we think they're a little bit vain or something and. But soon we must think that the miraculous wine of Cana will seep into their life. The old wine of human love and human attraction, indeed of sensuality, that's what brought them together. But it will all run out. That wine will run out. But don't worry, Christ will be present in their marriage and they will have this new miraculous Chardonnay. This soft Merlot. The smoky tinge of Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, with all its layers of taste. That's the supernatural aspect of, of just being present to, to preside over a wedding. Or when you give the soothing words of absolution to a repentant sinner. We've all heard them cry. We've all heard them weep, deeply aware of God's mercy. We have to thank God that He has given us that that opportunity. So we can really be in our priesthood the bonus order Christi, the, the good fragrance of Christ. Like a Chanel number five, uh, the Aqua di Gio, Giorgio Romani, they, they, you can buy a small little bottle, 150 bucks, just for a tiny little bottle. And sometimes we're just we're just happy with a four dollar aqua velva, you know. It's like, no, <laughs> we got to be Giorgio Armani. We got to be Chanel number five, you know, the bonus of the Christi. And actually, we can't do that unless we go to our Blessed Mother. If you permit me, uh, I'll finish with uh, an anecdote I heard during my preparation for the priesthood and it always stuck with me when I was being prepared they told us this anecdote about another workshop that had been done in, where they were preparing for their ordination and 
they were talking about, they were in different countries, the priests, or the soon-to-be priests, and they were from different countries, and they were t exchanging with other, other, each other about the different shrines in their countries, you know. Yeah, my, sh my country, we have this shrine, the shrine of Our Lady of whatever. The other guy said, oh, yeah, that's nothing. We have the shrine of Our Lady of blah, 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 whatever it was, you know. And they were, like, comparing the different shrines and which one was better and which one was more famous and blah, blah, blah. And one of the guys was saying, you guys, man, I have the best shrine, right? And uh, so it was like this silly conversation. But, but then they were sent out. They were ordained. They were sent out. And this guy who had said his was the best was sent to a shrine that he thought was like, you know, like it is no good at all. And he was told, go and hear confessions at that shrine right now. And, you know, so, okay. So he said, okay, whatever, I'll go there. And he arrives there, and the place is absolutely packed, and he's told to go into the confessional, one of his first times hearing confessions, and he spends hours there hearing confessions. He's absolutely exhausted after who knows how many hours, and he's in the shrine, and no, nobody, nobody's coming now. He said, okay, maybe I can get out of here now, okay. So he, he steps out, sure enough, pretty well nobody left in the church, and he goes out, goes into the front of the church and he goes, okay, okay, maybe I can, I can get home now. And there's an elderly man there in the front and he's looking rather sheepishly towards the church and, and uh, he says, Father, can you, can you hear my confession? And he goes, dude, I've been waiting here, I mean, you know, all, all afternoon. Yeah, yeah, okay, let's go. Uh, you know, like kind of just to be done with it attitude. You know, like, yeah, let's go. There's a confession right there. Just go in there. We, you know, let's go. And the, the fellow says, Oh, Father, uh, uh, I can't go into the church. Uh, you know, I can't go in. He says, Why not? There's a confessional right there. What's the, what's, the, what's the problem? He says, Well, Father, if Our Lady sees me the way I am now, she's not going to be very happy. <laughs> so can you hear my confession out here? And then I'll go in. And, you know, he was just like, you know, he was just taken aback by the, by the piety of this man. And uh, that's what Our Lady will do, you know, she will soften the blow of anything that happens to us. You know, let's ask her now eh, to help us to really see where the stones have to be removed and to accompany us in our ministry and our brothers, our brother priests as well. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.